Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Slow News, the podcast where we look at what's driving the news, not breaking news. I'm Basha Cummings. In the past four weeks, Britain has passed through a catastrophe. Tens of thousands of deaths from coronavirus, economic obliteration and a government struggling to provide testing, to provide protective gear to doctors and nurses on the front line or to offer the public a clear route out of lockdown. The pandemic has hit this country hard. But there's another dimension to this that has made the situation even more bleak, and that is the tragic number of deaths in British care homes. These are places for the elderly and the vulnerable, where now an estimated 15,000 people have died from COVID-19. And reporters have rightly scrambled to report the crisis on the ground. But here, in our newsroom, we wanted to take a step back. We wanted to understand this tragedy from the top down. How is this care industry run? Might that give us some indication as to why our care homes have been so badly hit? Before we get started, a message from our newsroom. Slow News is a podcast made by us here at Tortoise. We're a news publisher, in an app, online, in our daily Sensemaker email, and, as you already know, in podcasts. What's different about us is that we investigate what's driving the news, and we'd love for you to join us. By becoming a member of our newsroom, you'll get access to our journalism, and you can join our open news meetings and help decide what matters in the world and how we should report it. To get access to all of Tortoise, all you have to do is download our app and take the free trial. Go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial and help make the news. This is a story that involves billions of pounds. It involves complex finances, offshore firms and a person who has been making sense of it all and who has been an urgent voice for change and for reform is the reporter Ian Birrell. Ian has been investigating this industry for years. So we asked him, as care homes were in the headlines, we asked him to investigate the bigger picture. Who is running these places? How do they run them? And what is the cost of running them for profit? And what emerged was a remarkable story that took us to the Cayman Islands and the Caribbean, 
But it starts in East Glasgow with a person called Margaret Lapsley. And as we dive into this complex world of global financing and offshore companies operating in our care sector, I think it's really important to keep Margaret's story in our minds. Margaret was a 64-year-old former cleaner. She was a lover of Elvis Presley and an avid watcher of TV. She was left paralysed following a severe stroke. She was left bedbound, and so she was sent to a care home. Then, in March, her care home was hit by coronavirus. Her brother, James, usually would visit his sister about twice a week, but he had to stay away for fear of infecting her and for infecting their 87-year-old mother. He found out that his sister, Margaret, was suffering from symptoms of coronavirus on a Sunday, and, tragically, by Wednesday, she had died. James was angry. He told a Scottish paper that he had regretted sending her to a care home at all. And the reason that this story is important is because it happened in a care home called Burlington Court. And Ian, why did Burlington Court catch your eye? What's interesting about Burlington Court is in a way that it's a very average place. It's owned by one of the big providers. It sits in a suburb of Glasgow in a sort of residential area. It used to be very working class. And it has up to about 90 people, which is on the big side for a home. And it's a very average place. It's not particularly good. It's not particularly bad. Some of the people are very well rated for its kindness. But early in April, it was the first one to be revealed to have been hit hard by coronavirus. And it emerged that 13 of its residents had died in one week and a couple more later emerged. And this was the first time we really saw in Britain that the pandemic was going to hit care homes very hard. That was, of course, predictable. We knew that it would because of the the nature of these places filled with vulnerable people and because we'd seen it in Italy and we'd seen it in Spain where absolute horrors had emerged from some care homes. What this has shown us is really that we have a social care system which is broken. We have a social care system which is not fit for purpose. We've known that for about 20 years in this country, but the situation has got worse. It's been ignored by politicians who keep promising to reform it. And suddenly pandemic has hit it very hard and it's exposing all the problems of social care. And what I've written about with Tortoise, and Tortoise has helped me investigate, is the fact that no one's really noticed what's gone on there, which is that it's been taken over a lot of the sector by some very large companies, often offshore, which are making a lot of money at the expense of very vulnerable citizens in our society. The homes have been getting bigger as these people have moved in on the sector. They tend to run bigger homes. And of course, if you have more people there, it's more cash efficient. It's more sustainable, in their words, for a big provider. But of course, it also is wrong, I think, in two ways. One, it's it's meant to be a home. It's less human. It's less homely. Who wants to live in an institution for 90 people? And the other problem, of course, is that if a deadly virus hits the country and there's lots of people gathered together in places like Burlington Court, then you're going to get a lot more deaths. And sadly, tragically, that's what we've just seen in this country and that's what we're continuing to see in this country. So, Ian, let's start with a key question which is how much do we know about the people behind some of the private companies running these homes? Talk me through who owns Burlington Court. 
The owner is a company called Four Seasons, who are one of the biggest companies in this country. At Four Seasons, we believe that feeling looked after is as much about creating a sense of home as it is about providing quality care. We also Four know Seasons was set up in 1989 by a former hotelier in Fife, just after Margaret Thatcham got councils to put social care services out to competitive tender. Then it changed four times in 13 years among private equity firms. One think tank called it a pass-the-parcel game where each seller made a profit because the next buyer was prepared to pay more and cover the cost by issuing debt. Then in April 2012, it ends up with Terra Firma. Terra Firma acquired Four Seasons Healthcare, the UK's largest independent elderly and specialist care home operator, to lead this growing, changing sector. We are the largest owners of uh, care homes in the UK, uh, and we only have 5% of the market, so it is very fragmented, and we believe if we build a good platform, we are in a good position to act as a consolidator in the market. And they promised stability, they promised to end uh, uh, all the problems with debt, but it fell into debt, couldn't meet the interest payments, and is now in the hands of a Connecticut hedge fund called H2 Capital Partners. So it's got all these problems with debt. Now let's look a little deeper into the company. It has 181 companies in its structure, which is complex and opaque. They stretch from the Channel Islands, the Caribbean, and the parent companies in Guernsey. It's made operating profits before exceptional items of 74 million. So it's got high debts, it's got problems, no one would deny that. It's struggling, and yet it's still managed to hand its highest paid director almost £2.4 million over the past two years for which there's accounts, and £10 million to all its directors over four years. And yet at the same time, this is why it's so stark, I think, what's happening. At the same time, it's currently advertising for care assistance in homes today at, amid the front line, uh, on the front line of a pandemic where they're risking their lives it's advertising for care assistance at £8.73 an hour, which is 1p above the adult minimum wage. And in there, I think you see the problem we've got with this sector. Private equity, high debts, highly paid directors, lowly paid staff. With a company like Four Seasons, which has high debts, as you've explained, but still handing its executives high payouts, advertising at minimum wage... Is the point that you're making in your reporting that it is a culture in this sector which has contributed to crowded homes, high staff turnover, that meant that these care homes were uniquely poorly prepared for any kind of crisis, let alone a pandemic? I think you got it in one. I think you got it absolutely right. What we've got is a sector that is being exploited by private equity and private firms who are taking a lot of the money. It's not just pay for the bosses. It's not just the debt. It's also the rents to companies within their structures, the consultancy fees. Behind the opacity of these companies, many are seen essentially as property plays where they one company owns the care home and the property itself and another is running it. And there's all sorts of payments going between these companies. In fact, it's estimated that £1.5 billion per year incidentally, the same sum as the government has put in to boost social care, is lost in what they call leakage in this way. And that's money, of course, that could have gone to deliver better services, to pay and protect staff better. And it's not just Four Seasons. There are many other companies like them involved. 
And here, this is, this is what really surprised me. In a cash-strapped sector, most often associated with rising costs and underfunded staff on minimum wage, there's actually a lot of money flying around. Given that just last year, Four Seasons were facing administration. Feeling looked after is perhaps not having the financial backers of your elderly care home going into administration. But that is exactly what happened today at Four Seasons. A large provider of care homes... I was amazed at the picture that Ian painted. It's a picture of a market flowing with multi-million pound salaries. Who pay their boss more than three million pounds in the last year. Even Not larger multi-million pound payoffs. And that company paid off one person in the year before an astonishing 17.2 million pounds because they'd found some what was called horrific abuse and treatment being meted out to residents in one Northern Irish home. And, and companies based offshore in Guernsey, Luxembourg, Jersey. And there are big names attached to these investment firms too. They include three billionaire Irish racehorse owners who are famous on the racing circuit. It is another win for JP McManus. This is turning out to be quite a fine festival. And as he spoke, you could feel Ian's passion and anger growing. There is systemic and structural failure going on. And in my mind, it's exploitation. It's profiteering off the back of very old, very sick, and people with profound disabilities. And I find that not just unethical, but immoral. But the question that nagged me listening to Ian is, is any of this illegal? Well, I think that's a very good question. In Italy and Spain, we've seen criminal investigations launched into failures. And um, these places, if they are privately run, they have a duty of care to their people they're looking after. They have to be compliant with their duties, and that includes uh, human rights laws on the right to life, which is the most fundamental duty of all, and that includes all sorts of a raft of other uh, legislation to protect people. And if they're private companies, even if the government fails to give them PPE equipment in time or whatever, ultimately it's their duty to do so. And particularly if they're making uh, very hefty personal profits, then that's going to weaken their case. And barristers do expect there to be a flurry of legal claims coming after this. So I know a lot of the biggest operators, just as much as everyone else, has desperately been trying to protect people and working really hard to try and alleviate the worst of this crisis. Uh, so no one should accuse them of deliberately doing anything wrong. But ultimately, uh, they have been extracting big profits, but equally, they have a duty of care to anyone who's in their charge. I see the failure. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. 
When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And I would argue we need to sort them because it's a test for our society is how they treat people in need. Ian, this story is, is more than just a reporting project for you, isn't it? it? It's personal. Well, certainly I came to this for very personal reasons. My uh, daughter, who is now an adult, has profound and multiple learning disabilities. And uh, so through that, I have seen the struggles that parents, uh, all parents have in this situation in essentially fighting the state and originally to get the services which all other people would take for granted. And then I have seen at very close quarters the care sector. We have uh, a team of carers in our house now with my daughter who has 24-hour care. And I've seen the problems of uh, of getting good staff, but I've also seen the difference that good staff make and how amazing carers are. It's a very hard job. It's a very tough job. Uh, it's, it's a very compassionate job. I think it's not just about training, but it's about humanity and compassion and decency. And so from requiring full-time care for your daughter, how did you come to this part of the story? I studied uh, and started hearing about stories of people being locked up with learning disabilities and autism and did a campaign in a couple of newspapers, which has led to five, six government inquiries about the scandal that uh, people with autism and learning disabilities are locked up in uh, homes run by similar types of companies to these. This is how I began to hear about these sorts of companies. And we see exactly the same thing there in the in the mental health system within the NHS, uh, where these companies are muscled in and they're delivering terrible services often and in some cases fatal services. And yet people are having their human rights denied and being locked up in them. And I despair of the fact that government does nothing about it, the politicians do nothing about it, and that society doesn't really care about care until they need it themselves. Ian, you you mentioned politicians, so let's talk specifically about the government's preparations for the pandemic, because there's a line in the piece that you wrote for us here at Tortoise that just as a recession reveals businesses that are in bad shape, so this pandemic has exposed the disastrous state of the social care system. So... Tell me, how did the government prepare? No, I mean, I think this is what I've been talking about to some extent in that it's exposing a system which wasn't fit for purpose. And again, when it did hit, the government put all its effort into protecting the NHS. Now, I have no problem with building Nightingale hospitals or trying to get private companies to build ventilators. I've got no problem with trying to innovate in a time of crisis like that. What I do have a problem with is doing it all at the expense of social care. And that's what we saw. 
So when suddenly they realised there were problems with all the uh, protective equipment for the for care for the front line of this crisis, the NHS procurement took all the available supplies, leaving care once again without sufficient supplies. All the effort was on the NHS. I'm uh, Joyce Pinfield. I run two care homes. Uh, one is in North Lincolnshire and one is in North Somerset. We spoke to Joyce earlier this week. In the early days when we tried to get PPE, such as masks and gowns, we phoned our usual suppliers and they said, sorry, we have only been told to supply the NHS. In my own care provision, I did try to get more uniforms for my staff so that they can have more uniforms in the wash. And this was also unavailable to us because the manufacturers were purely making for the NHS. And Kerry Roberts, who runs Cariad Care Homes in Wales, told us of the financial stresses and the lack of support from the government early on in this crisis. We were completely abandoned. We were, we, we, I don't think we were thought about in the earlier, earlier days of, of coronavirus. Um, and I think it's only in the last few weeks that they've actually thought, once they've seen the actual the effect that, that COVID-19 has had on care homes in the UK, I think it's just since then that they thought, oh, actually, you know, we need to be doing something to support these the, the care homes. But we we were completely abandoned. We were completely forgotten about. And have you had all the gear you need? And I imagine it's put up your costs with all having to hire agency staff and extra equipment. It was very difficult initially with with sourcing some of the PPE. I mean, at one stage we were thinking we would have to improvise with aprons and um, make aprons out of bin liners. But fortunately, we found a new a new uh, provider for the aprons. So at the moment, we're okay with with PPE. But yes, our costs have gone up substantially. So prior to coronavirus, we were subsidising the health board and local authority residents by almost £90 per week. And then, of course, coronavirus came along. So we had to buy additional PPE. Um, We employed an additional 12 temporary staff. So our costs... um, in the first four weeks of so between 16th of of march and the 20th of april our costs was we've spent an additional forty five thousand pounds and has it got harder would you go into the business now if you were starting out again no and i think after after coronavirus i think a lot of the smaller companies if they can afford to give up i think they will do um it, it it's a struggle And Ian, this isn't a new political problem, is it? This is, as you say, decades in the making. I don't want them brought up in a country where the only way pensioners can get long-term care is by selling their home. The dream of a national care service to take the fear out of old age. This is a personal priority of mine, and it's got an ambition to match. And what we set out in our manifesto is a long-term plan for actually securing a sustainable future for social care in this country. That we will fix the crisis in social care once and for all with a clear plan we have prepared. Where have successive governments gone wrong on this? Well, to put it in perspective, in the last two decades, we've seen 17 one seven white papers, green papers, and state reviews of social care funding. So um, 
everyone knows the problem is there. We've had all sorts of answers put forward. Probably the best was Andrew Lansley when he got the Dilnot review, where which was possibly the one where people could have coalesced around it. Well, the story is a very, from my point of view, is a very frustrating one. But at the moment, everybody is understandably spending what it takes to put the fire out. But afterwards, we're going to be looking at the wreckage, the, the fiscal wreckage, and saying, well, what do we do now? So Andrew Lansley, the former health secretary who Ian spoke to, commissioned the Dilnot report in 2010. That report proposed some key changes to social care, the biggest of which was a total lifetime cap on the amount that anyone should pay for the care that they receive in their lifetime. He suggested £35,000 at the time should be the cap. Andrew explained to Ian how he believes the system can be fixed. I think from my point of view, I am much more aware that there needs to be a business model, which I mean, clearly there will be a proportion of older people who have effectively no assets and insufficient income and local authorities should be responsible for supporting them. For many others, and I'm not sure I yet understand how it can be otherwise, the principal asset is their home. They have equity. It's the largest single source of equity probably in society. And um, it should help them to pay for their care. And the Dilnot proposition was, I think, still a perfectly reasonable one, that we have a society in which there's a great deal of insurance. People insure their homes, their fire, they insure their cars, they insure their lives, they insure their dogs, cats. But for some reason, uh, nobody seems to have been able to establish a model for how they can insure against the potentially catastrophic costs of uh, long-term care. And what uh, Andrew said, which I think is still perfectly true, is that if we could cap the cost, we would create a potential market for insurance. Uh, And the Dilnot plan, actually, it it also has the merit that until quite recently, uh, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats uh, said that they could accept a plan based on Dilnot as long as the cap was set sufficiently low so as to make the insurance attractive and the obligations that people had to meet not onerous. And uh, and the government, perversely in my view, said we can't bring forward any proposals because we must have a cross-party discussion first. Well, we don't appear to have had the cross-party discussion and the cross-party agreement was available to them and has been for quite a long time. Do you think we might be pushed into action after this crisis or do you think it's just going to go back onto the back burner again? No, I think we will be pushed into action. I mean, I hope it isn't that we have to have action because of a fundamental breakdown in the sector. But the sector is right at the edge. So they do need something to happen and they need it to happen quickly. Well, that brings me perfectly to my next question, which is from your reporting and from your personal experience of care homes and carers, what do you think needs to change so urgently? If we think of, you know, the only silver lining from this pandemic and this lockdown is that we might be able to rebuild a slightly better society. How would you like to see the care sector changed? Well, obviously, all the talk is always about money and money is a big part of it. Care is expensive. Good care is expensive. And we need to fund care properly and we need to find a way to do it. But it's not just about money. Money is only a part of it. I would argue that it's really about respect and it's about humanity. It's about respect for people who might be less fortunate than us who are in need of care. It's respect for carers who are doing some of society's most difficult and toughest work. And that sort of respect only comes by valuing them properly, 
by paying them properly to do the job. And equally, if you have respect for such people, then I think you don't allow them to be milked in the way they are. You don't allow vulnerable people to be seen as as cash cows, to be milked by offshore companies. I fail to see why taxpayers should fund any company which has its headquarters based in a tax haven. I just think that's wrong. Denmark has shown that they're not bailing out companies now who are based in a tax haven. I think no state spends about, what is it, 40-ish percent of GDP. The state has power. The state could stop tax avoidance in some sectors if it was to use its muscle and just stop paying people who are tax avoiders. The state also has a role to properly crack down it, but it's about empowerment at the end of the day. It's about people. It's about people doing the work and it's about people who are being cared for. And they and their families, I think, should also be empowered, uh, whether through running the budgets where they want to or through having a proper system which doesn't rely on homes that house 90 people, but actually has them at the heart of the community. But ultimately, of course, it's our society that needs to change. It's society that needs to bring into its fold rather than exclude the very old and people with learning disabilities and people with disabilities. Society needs to accept them and accept their humanity because at the moment I fear that what it's not just that the social care sector is the second class public service. It's also that people with learning disabilities, people with profound disabilities and the very old are second class citizens in our society. And that I think is what's really been exposed by what we're seeing now. Ian, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I think there's a really good chance that you'll enjoy all the other journalism that we do at Tortoise. We publish articles that you can read through our app or online, and we're an open newsroom, which means that there are a whole load of editorial meetings that you can join in on from wherever you are in the world. You can shape our journalism and the stories that we tell. So all you need to do is get our app and you can get access to everything that we do. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash pod trial for a 30 day free trial. And I have to say, just as importantly, if you like this podcast, please share it or give us a review. Thanks and see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm John Curtis. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. This week on Trendy, the monarchy. A year after the coronation and as King Charles returns to work, what do we think of it and how has that changed over time? To listen to the episode, search for Trendy on Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed to make sure you don't miss an episode.